solutions are really in peril if we don't put a consumer lens on everything we do right from the start. I've probably said this a thousand times, but the road to successful food introductions is littered with failures that have been rejected by consumers. You know, we get our solutions all the way to market and the consumer looks at it and says, nope, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in RBST. I'm not interested in radiation. I'm not interested in Olean, you know, the fat replacer back in, oh gosh, the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. it can't be there's so many of these things that have just sort of gone the wayside because we haven't brought consumers into the fold with us and introduced to them food ideas and technologies early. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have as my guest, Kim Essex. She is partner and managing director for food, ag, and ingredients at Ketchum. Ketchum is a leading communications consultancy. And so I'm excited for this podcast. We have a lot of folks who work in industry, but Kim and Ketchum have a lot of insights into consumer behavior and other things that drive new product development and concept to consumption. So Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. So Kim, why don't uh, why don't you start off and just give our listeners a little thumb, thumbnail sketch on your personal background, how you got into this business and uh, got into uh, advising food and CPG companies about things like consumer behavior and innovation. Yeah, you're, uh, you're making me go back in history. Um, my interest, I think, in food uh, started when I had kind of a, you know, career paths to choose and I was deciding between chemical engineering and journalism, sort of you know, kind of a weird combo, but I loved both. Mm. You know, my, my brain loves to piece together things and it also loves to convey ideas. Um, so I chose the journalism route because um, I was just so obsessed and, and still am in how communications, words and pictures shape how people perceive things, understand ideas and the world around them, and how an idea communicated one way can lead to one impression, and then how an idea, the same idea communicated another way, leads to another impression. So I was I was intrigued with that whole concept. Um, so I, I, I pursued a career in journalism and um, naturally found myself in the field of public relations because that idea of perception management was very interesting to me, how people perceive things. And I joined um, the agency world in Chicago when I left college, and one of my first clients was McDonald's. Um, you know, and, and for McDonald's, I had the, the opportunity to do a ton of things, launch a new restaurant concept, um, talk to kids about McDonald's, talk to parents about McDonald's, talk to MBAs about why McDonald's would be a great career destination for them. Um, I was working with McDonald's at the time that they were just starting to um, take arrows on the environmental issues and um, doing some very, they were doing some very innovative things and changing packaging. It was the day that the clamshell was a big deal. Um, So there was, there was just a lot of interesting issues around food. And I found that it it kind of interestingly um, connected my science kind of passions um, with my communications packet passions. When I started to talk to about food and, and all the components of it. Um, so I've been in, in the middle of, since then, um, some of the most, I guess, hotly contested or high profile topics um, in food from lean, finely textured beef to bovine spongiform encephalopathy to genetic modification and technologies that are now bringing us plant-based protein options. Um, so I, I've um, sort of married the two. I've found that marriage in food. Well, great background. I'll tell you, I definitely would have chosen journalism. There's no way I could have cut it in chemical engineering. So <laughs> I kind of wonder if I should have gone the chemical engineering route. I was probably before my time and women in STEM and I probably would have done quite well. I don't know, but um, it's not that I haven't. I oh. really the journalism side of this, my brain too. <laughs> well, t- tell us, uh, so thanks, uh, very interesting background. Thanks for that, Kim. Tell us about Ketchum. What's the company's mission and strategy? What makes Ketchum different from, from other companies out there? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, as, as you mentioned in the beginning, we're, so we're a communications consultancy, um, and there are many agencies out there, but I don't think there are many that are so steeped in food, and it's really why I jo joined Ketchum about 10 years ago. Uh, we've been working in, with the food industry for more than 70 years as a company. Um, all segments of food, um, from agriculture um, to processing to ingredient manufacturers, everything in the supply chain, up through CPG brands and retail and food service operators. Um, I, at Ketchum, I lead the team focused on food, ag, and ingredient companies and organizations. So we focus entirely as a team on the supply chain, the food supply chain. Um, from helping farmers to input and ingredient companies to processors and distributors, you know, really sync up their um, product development and their go-to-market strategies and their vision for the company with customer expectations and consumer expectations. Um, um, so it's both B2B and B2C work. Um, and we have a team of folks then who focus on consumer food. Um, so branded food, kind of the pure marketing of food, and a team that supports food hubs, so grocery stores, convenience stores, food service, and all its segments. Um, so we're we're very specialized in food. It's um, being a ketchup, I kind of call it a, a candy store. Um, it's like being in a food boutique surrounded by people who spent their entire careers in food, but we're surrounded uh, as a community, as a food community, by you know, pros around the world who are kind of the best in the business from issues and crisis counselors to investor relations to visual storytellers, videographers, designers, artists, copywriters, all of that, um, nutritionists on staff. So it's um, it, it, it really is um, it's it's a perfect place for my uh, interests and career path. Um, you know, we, we catch them, we kind of love the vibrancy and uh, dynamic food business, including even the vigorous debates around food. Uh, we hire people who come from all walks of the food business so we can, we can navigate those debates and reflect the sentiment of consumers and be kind of that conscience of consumers for our clients as they enter the conversation about food. Yeah, and vibrant and innovative uh, terms like that, that's definitely a good descriptor for the food industry today, not like it was maybe 15 or 20 years ago. So exciting times. So, it is. Yeah, so so Kim, Ketchum, you and Ketchum really, it appears, deeply study consumer behavior and uh, and how consumers interact with food. So. For a lot of for a lot of food producers and manufacturers and brand owners, I think they sort of have a sense for what's going on with consumers, but they don't necessarily deeply study consumer behavior and consumer interests. So talk to us about why you think that consumer behavior aspect is important. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's a great point. Again, being part of this global communications consultancy, we can we can invest in some research so we're smarter for our clients. So that's another reason that I so enjoy being part of Ketchum because um, consumers are are really the arbiter of everything we do in food. Like full stop, they decide yes, I'm going to eat that or no, I'm not. Um, and you know, as we all know, they're demanding transparency if it's going in. You know, if I'm going to put it into my body or I'm going to feed it to my baby, or in my case, my 16-year-old who's burning through calories and wants to be an NBA star. You know, we want to know what is in our food. Um, and, and I think kind of classically what we do in food development and what the industry does in food development is we, we solve problems. Um, you know, if an ingredient is scarce, uh, we, we try to mimic it. We try to figure out how we're going to replace it so that we can continue to produce the foods we produce. Or um, if, if we're not, if a, an ingredient's not achieving the desired effect, whether it's texture, density, or shelf life, or you know, what be it, um, how do we fix that through food innovation? You know, obviously ingredient pricing is a big part of what food developers do. And, and how, do we, how do we improve margins for our companies? You know, even things I've spent a lot of my time in the agriculture side of the business. So, you know, stuff like cows, they burp and they fart. And how do we reduce that? Because that is introducing methane into the atmosphere. How do we reduce that? 
there's so many things that I think organizations, companies, and specifically food scientists and developers do. They're problem solvers. Um, and if, if, if not, you know, if nothing, they're not, they're, they're ingenious, you know, and I marvel every day at what solutions are surfaced. But our solutions, those solutions are really in peril if we don't put a consumer lens on everything we do right from the start. Um, I've probably said this a thousand times, but the road to successful food introductions is littered with failures that have been rejected by consumers. You know, we get our solutions all the way to the market and the consumer looks at it and says, nope, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in RBST. I'm not interested in irradiation. I'm not interested in Olene, you know, the fat replacer back in, oh gosh, the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. the there's, there's so many of these things that have just sort of gone the wayside because we haven't brought consumers into the fold with us and introduced to them food ideas and technologies early before they even get into the market space to understand what the permissive space is. Like Petra, we talk about that permissive space. What, what are we allowed to do? What problems are we allowed to fix? How far can we go with those solutions that consumers find acceptable? Because they agree that that problem needs to be solved. Um, so well before you know a food gets to market, well before we're introducing a food or selling our technology to a food company, a branded food company, we, we need to introduce it to consumers and seek consumer acceptance. Um, you know, I... I kind of the democratization of information and the fact that everybody owns ink, right? We used to talk about that in journalism, who owns ink. So consumers own ink right now um, and will forevermore. Um, The fact that that exists means it's too volatile. The the communications environment is too volatile not to plan um, to involve consumers early, to enroll consumers early in product development. Makes sense. Start with the consumers, and and I like that uh, phrase you use, permissive space. So, um, talk to us about a specific type of consumer um, during your during your presentation at TGCon Live, which is on demand. All of our listeners can just Google TGCon Live, and you can look up Kim Essex and watch her presentation on demand for more information. But one of the things you talk about, Kim, during that presentation is a is a specific niche within consumers. You call them food evangelists. So talk to our audience about that class of consumer and and, and what makes them tick and why food yeah. companies should care about them. Yeah. Gary, I love that you remember that um, because it means it's an idea that sticks and it. it should stick in our brains, this idea of food evangelists and food evangelism. Um because enrolling consumers early in the process is um, one of the ways to navigate this unique subsegment of the primary shopper. So I, let me let me start by talking about where and how we identified these folks. Um, at Ketchum, we we've been doing a lot of research on just consumer um, desires of the food industry. So in 2008, back to 2008. Um, we started a study with consumers that basically asked consumers, if you were CEO of a major food company, well, how would you spend your money? How would you prioritize um, a, a variety of things, you know, purpose, mission, um, product development? Where would, you know, where would you put your investments? And we started doing this research uh, every two years, global um, consumer study and now really probably would be considered a longitudinal study because we've been doing it for quite some time in 2013 what happened was we were looking at the data from this research project and and we had at that point i believe three years of, of data and we saw a subsegment of the consumer population the primary shopper that we were asking these questions of kind of emerge um Demographically, they looked very similar to every other primary shopper, but they were people who were saying, I am advocating for or critiquing food brands, food practices more often. They they were expressing that behavior more often than the average consumer. In fact, they do this kind of behavior, advocating 
critiquing new brand speak practices four or more times a week, offline and online. And that, that is significantly higher than just general population and, and primary shopper population. And we, we kind of then dissected the data based on that subsegment of the population and um, discovered that they are an interesting group of people. Um, and I think if you even, Gary, if you even think about the folks that you know in your life, you will discover that you've got food evangelists in your circle. Um, they are the, they're not activists, so they're not, you know, they're not signing petitions or asking you to sign petitions. They're not aligned with some NGO. They're not adopting an agenda. They're just really interested about food and they talk about food all the time. Um, that's how you know them. Um, they want to talk to you about food. Um, and they're, they're curious and they're researchers and they dig up information and they sync up that information and they form opinions about food that they think are kind of interesting and exciting so that you're standing at a party or talking to, you know, a mom, at, uh, you know, or a mom or a dad at your kid's baseball game. And these are the people who want to talk about food with you. Uh, and they're actively doing that. Um, the health of their family and themselves is clearly important. They're doing all the stuff that we all do, read labels and, and make trade-offs and try to figure out how to live as healthfully as we can and eat foods that we love. But they don't, they don't just stop there. Um, they want to help others make those choices for themselves and their family. Um, and, and interestingly, uh, when it comes to food and we suspect other topics, they, they feel sort of this ethical obligation. That's kind of their motivator um, to share what they know because they, they believe it can help someone else make better choices, smarter decisions. Um, in fact, they're, they're, a, they're, as a group, more actively involved in their community. They report giving back more than the general population. Um, they value information and experiences um, when they kind of talk about what's most important, and they hate hyperbole. So they're, they're, um, they reject marketing um, in the classic form. So hmm. they are looking for deeper meaning and deeper understanding of food. And it's probably why they trust others like themselves and experts and people inside companies. Product developers have such a unique role to play with this audience because they want people, they want to talk to people on the ground. Like they want to understand what's going on behind the scenes and they expect to be engaged, um, not sold. You know, they're not, they're not going to take the blanket positive story that a brand will put out about itself at face value. They're going to dig around. Um, so they're a really interesting audience, um, and they're growing, um, which is, I think, maybe the, the most important thing to know about them. In 2013, when we saw this subsegment materialize in our research, they were about 11% of the population, which it, to me sounded astounding. But to a company like a PepsiCo, you know, they're like, that's really not going to move mountains for me. But today, in our latest research, um, they're nearly one in five, uh, nearly one in five primary shoppers demonstrate food evangelist behavior. So that idea of researching, understanding, and then advocating four or more times a week online and offline. Um, you know, I, I think they've gone from maverick to mainstream. They're kind of the, the population that is moving opinions about food and are, are here to stay. So they become increasingly important when it comes to communication. If they're one fifth now, it sounds like they they uh, exert an inordinate amount of leverage, yes. and so food That's and good companies and brand owners got to pay attention to them, right? Right. I, I think that's a really good good way to think about them. They un, inordinate uh, influence is absolutely the way to to think about them. Does this, Kim, does this tie into what we're seeing now with the impact of different generations? Uh, is, is part of that, uh, that uh, younger generations yeah. are about food evangelists? And, and then also, more broadly, what's going on with different generations and how is that playing into overall trends? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, in, in 2013, again, when we, we surfaced this subsegment, um, they were maybe the kind of the predictable demographic. So they were there were more women that were food evangelists than men, and there were they were more parents because they had that responsibility of feeding more than themselves. Um, they were more educated. They had higher household income 
um, you know, and all that kind of makes sense, right? Um, but that's not the case anymore. Um, a food evangelist's average income, they're equally single and, and married. Um, they are, um, I think what's most interesting from the 2019 data that we um, collected was more food evangelists are men today than women. And more of them are mm. certainly younger generations. So the, the men and the what we call Gen Zennials, um, so kind of the, the later um, Generation Z, who is now launching on their own, trying to launch on their own, as well as um, early millennials, so that 25 to 35 age group, um, are, are demonstrating way more food evangelist behaviors um, than general population. And, and I think what's interesting about that is they're, you know, they're also the audiences that are more open to food technologies um, and changes in the food system. So men and, and younger audiences are more open to that. I think there's an intersection there, an opportunity for us to use that gender and that age category, that age cohort to um, introduce new ideas about the food system. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So they're not only growing as a segment, but they're morphing to be more representative yeah. of, of the overall population. Yeah. 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 So. It is. I think it's also just a, you know, a, a signifier that as, as it becomes more mainstream, um, they're going to be a permanent structure. Originally, when we saw this behavior, we thought it was a sign of the times and there were some trigger points and you know, this isn't a day where, you know, lots of, you know, dye, red dye number 40 or whatever the number is on it. And uh, lean, finely textured beef was all, you know, there was, there's so many topics and GMOs and were surfacing as big issues that the question was, what is it a fad? Um, or, and will it be cyclical? Well, it just surface periodically. And, and I think what we're seeing is, no food evangelists are raising many food evangelists and the population is increasing and it's just it will be it is our our, our normal today um that the consumers we speak to and the consumers we focus on are are that is that group of folks who are just passionate about food and will either make or break um, a new product or a, a new technology I'm here with Kim Essex, who is a partner and managing director of food, ag, and ingredients at Ketchum, a leading communications company. Um, Kim, one of the things you went into in your presentation at TGCon Live, and again, I would encourage people to watch that presentation. Just Google TGCon Live, and you'll you'll see Kim's uh, presentation there. Um, you talked about the impact of transparency and technology, and those are two. Uh, continuing to grow themes. Uh, tell 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 our listeners some of the highlights and takeaways from your presentation on that. Yeah. Um, so separately, in a, in addition to tracking these food evangelists, um, we we've been studying how consumers understand and internalize technology, food technology, um, and and we've been doing that work since 2018. Um, and our key takeaway from the 2000 and 2000, 2018, 2019 work was where we are often our own worst enemy. You know, we assume consumers are seriously grossed out by tech and food. Um, so we really avoid going into the, that vortex. You know, we, we avoid that conversation with consumers because we're scared that we're going to create the next food war. Um, but in reality, the data showed consumers were interested and com increasingly comfortable with tech in, in much higher um, percentages than we assumed. Um, nearly two-thirds, 62% of Americans in that, that research indicated that they were likely to try a food grown or produced with technology. And for all of us who've worked in food forever, we, you know, we'll all say, well, you know, practically all food is produced with technology. And absolutely it is. But for consumers... They, they don't think about it that way. You know, they don't understand yogurts, you know, can be produced with technology and is produced as a technologically advanced product, right? They don't, they don't think about it that, that way. They're really thinking about technology introduction in food and nearly two thirds are likely to try it. And, and more than half were comfortable with the idea of technology used to grow or make food. Um, and I thought those numbers were 
way higher than I was expecting, to be honest. Um, and and it, as I mentioned before, comfort and interest increases among men and um, that Gen Zennial population, consumers between the age of 18 and 34. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting. Um, men are more likely to consume um, and be comfortable with technology than women. So, and I grabbed the numbers here just to kind of give you some perspective because it's significant. Men, 69% more likely to consume versus women, 56%. Uh, men, 64% comfortable with technology, where women are just at that 49%, just at that halfway marker. Um, and consumption increases pretty dramatically by age category. So younger consumers, 71% comfortable um, versus 58% of older Americans. So we're, um, we're looking at, again, men and younger consumers being the, the um, influencers to, I think, consumer perception at large on food technology. But then COVID happens. So we conducted similar research in 2020 um, and the data looks different. And uh, the data was collected in July um, and it it's really retrenching, I think. I think it's a reflection of the unsettledness of our time. You know, previously 62% we're likely to try a food made with technology. And in July, 35% said they were willing, they were likely to. Wow. Um, so pretty dramatic drop. Same with comfort, 56% comfortable pre-COVID, 37% comfortable post-COVID. And so the question is, does that continue? Do, have we, you know, have we hit a tipping point where our concerns and um, discomfort have been so magnified that we we've changed the trajectory of our our opinions um you know and and you can we can debate that i think i i think um the underlying fundamentals that drove the increase in comfort and interest which is really exposure to really good foods great tasting legitimate alternatives created by science and an interest in solving some significant challenges in our world like climate change um, created that acceptance, particularly about among men and younger consumers. And um, I think that underlying fundamental still exists. Um, so I'm hoping to see these numbers rebound. We'll see what the numbers will show in, in the coming years. Um, but I think our self-interest in long-term health and increasingly in, in our planet's health will um, make these numbers rebound and acceptance rebound. So so let's go with that hypothesis for a second and say, okay, yeah. the pa pandemic will end and consumers will increasingly <laughs> say, you know, okay, I'll try something with technology. That's fine. Um, but technology and transparency go hand in hand, right? They're not good. They're not yeah. going to accept technology unless I'm completely yeah. transparent about it. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, absolutely. I, and that, that goes to that permissive space idea um, that if you just voice this on consumers, because previously, right, consumers didn't really ask us, how'd you make that? I mean, that, years ago, that was not the question. Today, that is the question. That is the answer we need to give before we go to market. And finding what consumers find, um, identifying what consumers believe to be good solutions to challenges that matter to them. Um, producing healthier food, producing um, food in a way that uses less natural resources or has less of an impact on the planet, producing foods that taste exceptionally better than what's currently on the market. Those are real benefits. So if, if we're solving problems um, and challenges that consumers say, yep, yeah, that's a challenge. I agree. I agree. That's a problem. And we're using technology to fix that problem. We are, I, I believe, um, consumers are more willing to consider technology because we have technology in every part of our life. And now we have technology in food and we've seen it. You know, we've seen the impossible bur burgers and beyond meats of the world. And, um, you know, it's particularly in the, the animal um, product category, there's been an infusion of alternatives and technology that 
you know, consumers haven't resisted because they, they feel somehow that that product is solving a problem that's important to them. Yeah, and I would think you, you you touched on it a bit. I would think technology really comes into play in the in the fast moving plant based protein yeah, yeah. world. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at Impossible, what they've done with Heme. You can't tell their story without that technology yeah. aspect to it. And right. right now, hundreds of millions of dollars are being poured into cultivated meat, which is going to further expand mm-hmm. the technology envelope. So. Um, but w- what's your advice to these companies? Just, just be honest and be transparent and say things like, yeah, we, we're, 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 we're producing this food through fermentation in a vessel, but you know, mm-hmm. you know, yogurt is fermented, beer is fermented. Uh, you mm-hmm. can't have, you can't have chocolate without fermentation. Is, is that yeah. what you're saying to people? Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways I am. And I, I also am suggesting that you bring consumers into the fold sooner than uh, product introduction because frankly a lot of these technology companies are um, their customers are food companies and food companies branded food companies are going to demand that technology makers um, prove that there is um, consumer acceptance out there for this technology they're not going to want to put their brand in crosshairs so really having a good consumer um, review panel um, involving consumer influencers early to understand so that you have advocacy on your side when you go to market, um, really getting honing in on the communications and making information accessible immediately, um, you know, building a bit of a what I call a breadcrumb trail on, on what you've been doing, how you've been solving the challenges, who thinks these these solutions are super interesting, safe, um, and and the future? Um, creating that breadcrumb of information that's discoverable—that's that idea of transparency—is making information discoverable, um, so that there's a long record of advocacy for what you're the problem you're addressing and the solutions that you have finally landed on enables adoption faster. Um, I mean, I think Impossible even discovered that, right? When that when they actually put out, you know, they, they resisted uh, communications about the technologies in their food for a while. And then they said, you know what? No, the way we're doing this is really interesting. We want people to know and opening those doors allowed people to judge for themselves. In an ideal scenario, I think what we're learning is opening those doors even sooner so that you don't have to spend a lot of resources and don't have to face kind of the the existential threat of consumers walking away from your brand if you have a chance to explain and um, allow them to discover it. Yeah. 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 I think impossible is a great, uh, a, gr- a great yeah. example. Yeah. So, so, so Kim, you've talked about the, the leverage these, uh, food evangelists have, and that kind of touches on the whole social media area. Talk to us more. Uh, if, if I'm a food company these days, obviously I can't ignore social media, but, uh, what are your thoughts and do you have any tips or suggestions for how food companies, uh, handle and leverage social media? You know, that idea of owning ink. So uh, social media is truly the great equalizer. It allows us all to be an expert, to learn and to share. Um, and as remarkable as that is, it's also, as we've learned, a wasteland of misinformation. Um, so you can't stand on the sidelines. Um, you, I think many food companies, social platforms are a bit anemic. They need to engage early in development and they need to engage often. Um, they have to mobilize that they have to mobilize their experts in house to share their stories. So that's the other thing that I think is, um, is something I hope I see our clients and more companies do is not just issue sort of the corporate position or the voice of the company in their social platforms, but enable their people, you know, the scientists working on the challenge, the marketer who's thinking about how to communicate. Um, consumers want to meet the people behind the wall. Um, giving them a chance to do that through social media is a really 
awesome opportunity. Um, because the beauty of it is, thanks to social media, companies don't have to go through a middleman anymore. You know, it used to be that we'd have to go through, um, you know, the the news engine. So um, we were a reporter to tell the story to broad audiences. Now you can take your story to them directly. Um, but it, it does, you know, it does take energy. Um, it takes a dedication. Um, and, and, and it often takes a communications partner for folks who aren't, you know, they're just not, not the, you know, their, their first day job isn't working social media. So having somebody be your partner, do that work so you can multiply and multiply the effects of the work and, and really gain acceptance early and understanding early is super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Sort of the concept of, you know, hey, meet your food scientist or meet your product developer instead of trying yeah. to keep that behind closed doors. Absolutely. It's super interesting. I, I've i been, you know, being, being a marketer, um, I'm, I'm always so intrigued that consumers even want to get to know the marketers. It's like, really? Um, but they do. They they want to um, they want to understand what's involved, how how they think, what are they thinking about. Um, they have a very credible voice because they're standing behind the scenes and they're making you know they're they're creating change in an organization too um, by reflecting the consumers' opinions into product development. So there's this give and take between you know development and marketing and sales that I think is really interesting for consumers to see. Mm-hmm. So, so Kim, one of the questions we ask uh, a lot of our guests on this podcast is we, we talk about fads versus trends. So with mm-hmm. all your with all your consumer research, what 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 can you share in terms of what you think might be shorter term fads versus longer term trends? Yeah, it's a hard question because we're in such a anomaly of a time, you know, never seen before. Um, you know, I'm, we've all been bar- bombarded by the realities of consumers baking more at home and cooking more at home. Everybody's doing that. It's it's sort of, a, you know, it was required of us. Is it something that will continue? Is something we've asked? So, of course, those trends are up. Baking at home. In fact, I can even pull it up. Hartman released some data today or, or re-released. I'm sure it's data that they've shared previously. You know, cooking at home, uh, doing more. 66% say they're doing more of that since COVID-19. Looking for new recipes. 46% say they're doing that more since COVID-19. Baking. 39%. You know, they. I mean, it's all that stuff we've heard already. One of the one of the things we asked in our survey um, in July that I think is super informative to that idea of trends and fads. What's a fad? What's a trend? Um, we ask consumers not just what you're doing more of, but what do you expect to do more of, continue to do more of? What do you expect you will be doing farther down the road? So in our data, 88% of them said they were cooking more at home, but 15% of them expect that to continue into the future. That's pretty dramatic. So, Mm. you know, they are cooking at home, but do they plan on doing that forever? It doesn't sound like it. 72% are baking at home. 30% expect that to continue into the future. That's still a great bump for all the folks who produce ingredients that, that help home bakers. Um, but it's still a reduction in what we're seeing now. Now is a fairly extraordinary time. And yet some of the other patterns that we've seen increase, like obviously home delivery for groceries, increases in meal kit usage, which, you know, meal kits were basically, you know, on a a lifeline um, before COVID and and they got a bump from COVID because people were at home. Takeout delivery, all of those things increased and consumers are saying, yeah, I'm going to continue to do those things. And what that says to me and probably everybody else listening to this is convenience is still king. Um, we're going to weather this and the behaviors that we have created by, um, you know, isolating ourselves and becoming more homebodies. The ones that stay with us are the ones that have increased convenience in our lives. The ones that have allowed us to simplify, allowed us to shorten the m- amount of time and enable us to do other things, you know, free up time to do other things. So. Um, I'm betting on, and it's, it is all bet, that um, 
when we look at the trends today, those that uh, reinforce our desire for convenience um, are the ones that last into the future. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, 15%. It's going to be interesting uh, several years from now when the pandemic is hopefully over, we look back and say, did that uh, did that do more cooking at home uh, trend? Did that stick around? It'll be interesting yeah. to see. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I am uh, longing for a good restaurant meal. And I am going for a good <laughs> restaurant meal on Saturday for my anniversary. I just, oh. you know, it's just time. It is time. Um, so there you go. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations. clean. I want it. <laughs> well, congratulations on your anniversary. I hope you have a fantastic dinner out. Um, so switching gears on you, Kim, what, you know, we've talked about a lot of different consumer driven behavior issues. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see food companies making these days? Yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, they're doing so much right. Um, I mean, I, I, I am so proud of the food industry, honestly, having been in it for about three decades and having been frustrated by it for you know, many years. I'm so proud. I, I'm really, I love the transparency that we're seeing from companies. I love that companies are moving beyond marketing a product to determining kind of their role, their place in society and how they can really move the needle on societal issues. Um, you know, commerce moves faster than governments and they can really change the world. And I think they're putting their muscle behind it. And I, I find that so inspiring as a consumer. Um, the, the things I think we will see more of, or I hope we will see more of from companies is you know, the topic I mentioned previously, um, mobilizing employees as advocates. Really, I, I think, and, and I have, I happen to have, you know, idealistic teenagers, so 16 and 20 year old. And I, I operate in, and, and a lot of my colleagues are in their 20s. So I, I move in circles with a lot of younger people. Um, and their, their desire to make a difference and their commitment to it is just so overwhelming to me. And um, I think they will only join companies that they believe will enable them, support them in, in doing things they believe in. So I think giving employees a platform to share what's going on in the company, what they're really excited about is something I'd love to see more of, more companies do. Um, you know, talking about consumer insights and consumer research, it's always been, I mean, it's, it's always been, the, it's a textbook thing that marketers, all of us in marketing start with. What does the consumer think? What does the consumer want? What does the customer think? What do they want? And then we answer that challenge. That's, that's the crux of marketing. But I think treating consumer insights, um, we, we treat them as marketing tools, and we need to start treating them more as reputation and communications tools as well. Um, what are consumers' expectations of a company and their role in society, and how do we rise to that occasion? Um, letting consumers tell us where we should go and, and how we can, we can affect change as an organization or company is I think the next part of the next frontier. Um, um, and, and I, I, you know, I think letting communicators into the C-suite, I think one of the mistakes that companies, many companies in food have is they don't have the, the consumer conscience sitting at the table in the C-suite. I think that's the job of a communicator. Um, it is our job, communications job at the table to say, if you say that, if you do that, if if your policy decisions don't align with your marketing decisions, don't align with your product development decisions, you're going to get called out. It's our job to, to to align those things and be that conscience at the table. So I, I think that's maybe, if, if I could cast it as a mistake, one of the biggest mistakes um, is the need to put that voice at the table. Yeah, so more engagement and engagement all the way to the C-suite. Sounds sounds like good advice there. Yeah. So so Kim, what can you share with our listeners? What's next for you 
and uh, and for Ketchum. Yeah. You know, we're um, maybe it's not a what's next, but it is a what is. <laughs> um, we're doing a lot of work in sustainability right now for our, our clients who are doing amazing work. Uh, improving the carbon footprint of their supply chain, uh, researching ways to um, use fewer inputs or uh, reuse inputs to improve um, the environmental footprint um, of their production systems. They're doing amazing work. And so we're, we're, we're being asked more and more to tell those stories. And, um, and we've created a whole team around that. And we've got GRI certified uh, folks on our team who know, you know, what it takes to kind of meet the expectations of the global community on sustainability. And, um, and one of the, one of the things that we've been doing is really watching the changing definition of sustainability. Um, you know, it used to be that sustainability was very much that word was hitched to the environment, doing something that protects or supports our natural resources, those limited natural resources. And it certainly still means that, um, but increasingly, we're seeing consumers say it also means a safe food supply. It also means a viable, economically viable food supply. Um, so there's this recognition that if, if companies can't make it, they're not going to get the food to the table. So we've got to have a system that works. Um, food accessibility. Boy, we, we certainly had a spotlight on that thanks to COVID that revealed, you know, we're... Um, there are people behind the food that you eat, um, and and there's a lot of systems in place. And making sure that that system is uh, protected and supported to to get it to the shelf or the table um, is important. It's part of sustainability. Um, so I think that expanding definition definition is really what's next. Um, in food, that's, I think, really interesting and kind of a new frontier. Yeah, sustainability, it's only increasing. Um, so, Kim, if if any of our listeners are interested in reaching out to you and getting a hold of you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, um, so my email is kim.essex at Ketchum, and that's uh, K E T. C-H-U-M dot com. Um, that's, that's the easiest way to reach me. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn um, and on Twitter, so you can find me there. Um, and I, I welcome the engagement. That would be great. Fantastic. So, Kim, one of, the, one of the questions we ask all of our guests on this show is, what advice would you give to two different sets of folks? First, first people who are already working in innovation in the food and CPG space? And second, new people just starting their career in this space. What what advice would you give? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll take it from a communications perspective since that's what I do day in, day out. I think um, from an innovation perspective, you've clearly heard me say bring consumers in early. I'd also say, you know, scientists and technical people uh, go technical fast and they introduce their technology because they're super excited about it and they share all the benefits, like all the things that it can do that's amazing. Um, but they miss this sort of critical first step of communications, which is um, getting alignment, um, really finding common ground, stating the problem you're trying to solve and and expressing that in a way without hyperbole, just this is a challenge and here's why it's a challenge and really get alignment around that with whoever you're talking to. It might be policymakers or consumers or um, other stakeholders, shareholders for that matter, boards. Getting people to head nod around, yes, that is a problem we need to solve, makes it so much easier to talk about than solutions because um, we're already aligned on the why, why we're doing. Um, so that I think is kind of um, my advice to innovators. And then the other question was uh, starting career, right? Starting career. Um, right. I I have a couple of mantras that have followed me in my career. Um, one is listen. Just sit as as you're learning in your career, sit back and listen and absorb. 
um, walk through open doors. There are open doors all over the place. Um, and I, th I think early in our careers, we overthink them. I think you just got to walk through the open door and do things that might make you uncomfortable, that you wonder whether you're qualified to do or you know how to do or you're trained to do. But walk through that open door and, and do it. One of the best pieces of career advice that I've heard recently um, is be open to lateral changes. Don't look for, don't think of your career as a ladder. Um, think of it more as a path and move around the organization, move around organizations, frankly. Take lateral moves that let you grow another skill. Um, the, the world's too unpredictable. And one of the things that um, I think employers want are people who are, um, have the ability to use the word Gary Morph, you know, have the ability to just jump into something they've never done before and figure it out. And being proving that capability, I think, is the most important thing that somebody starting their career um, should be thinking about. That's a good one, and that uh, that's a piece of advice I personally give to folks just yeah. starting their career. So I couldn't agree with you more. Um, yeah, it's good to have retrospect, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the latter is is an outdated metaphor. So great advice, uh, Kim. Before we go into wrap up, any any other words of wisdom or uh, comments you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I just I, I am optimistic for the future of food technology. Um, I think it is an exciting time to be in food and agriculture. I. I literally think that um, this this industry has the potential to change the world um, and preserve the world and protect the world um, and protect people. Um, we have the potential to just really make a difference. So it's it's an exciting time. I think folks who are debating whether to you know make a career in food or stay in food um, or agriculture or beverage, whatever it happens to be, I think. The, the future is in this industry. Yeah, really exciting time. I couldn't agree more. I'd like to thank my guest today, Kim Essex, who is partner and managing director of food, agriculture, and ingredients at Ketchum, a leading communications consulting firm. Kim, thanks so much for all your time today. Thanks for listening to C2C where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.